Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. If you're like me, and I know I am, you want your tank filled. So we're going to do that this hour. Uh, Dr. Greg Borgon is going to be joining the show in just a minute. And we're going to um, uh, talk to him. And then also I'll be talking to uh, Pastor Brent Kuhlman. And we're just going to kind of get the pastors and some of the great theologians just to get us thinking and fill our tanks. That's going to be a great hour. I'm looking forward to it. So why should I even pause another minute? Let's take our very short 60-second break, which we always do right before we bring on our guest, and then bring on Dr. Greg Borgon. I'm Neil Stavum, manager of Faith Radio. Our spring fundraiser was scheduled to begin this Tuesday. But as with most events, schedules have been changed. But what hasn't changed is God's faithfulness and His love for us. And we're honored to bring that message every day through Bible teaching and talk programs that bring the hope of the gospel to a world of hurting people looking for comfort and strength. This is all possible by listener support. And over the next several weeks, we're asking you to step out in faith and partner with us through your prayer and giving. Giving online is available anytime at myfaithradio.com. Or you can text the word GIVE to 877-933-2484 to make a gift. And we know that many are facing financial hardship right now. And so we ask those who listen and are able to give to give generously so we can continue to proclaim the promises of God in a season of uncertainty. And together we'll celebrate God's goodness during our spring fundraiser now beginning Tuesday, May 5th on Faith Radio. Dr. Greg Borgon is president and founder of Heart Abbey Warrior Ministries. He's taught in graduate and postgraduate schools for many years. He's authored many uh, award-winning books, and he is uh, one of my favorite guests. And he comes to us today from his secure bunker in his home. Greg, welcome. Well, it's good to be here, even if at a distance. <laughs> I agree. All right, let's uh, let's talk about this present situation we're in and some of the things that we should be uh, considering and thinking about and being prayerful about. Sure. You know, being forced to kind of shelter in place can remind us uh, what really matters in life. I think you would agree, Bill. Um, what we thought was important has become less so. Amen. What we have, what we have forgotten, what was important, has kind of surged to the front of our lives. So, no doubt, many of us have been examining the majors and the minors of our life. Um, have we been majoring in minors or minoring in majors? In any case, it may be time to reassess what's most important. Well, when life begins to return to some degree of normalcy, and we hope that's going to be in the near future. What, we will, what will we focus on? You know, what, what are we going to prioritize in our lives? What will we release or relegate to the bin of unimportance? What will we turn our energies to? What will we engage in? What will we let pass us by? What can we positively influence and what is out of our control? Every conflict, crisis, or emergency forced on us by circumstances, events, or encounters require wisdom to determine whether to make a stand or not get involved at all. Sometimes the better part of wisdom is to simply walk away. Mm-hmm. 
we may be faced with a difference of opinion or an assault on our beliefs and values, which requires wisdom to determine whether to engage with whatever power we have available or not engage. Sometimes circumstances, well, they'll dictate in one instance to engage while in another instance not engage. Premature engagement may cause more harm than good. So how do we decide when to get involved? Well, the scriptures give us guidance when they remind us to be wise, to evaluate our circumstances, and to assess possible outcomes of engagement. We can choose not to make an issue of the matter for the sake of peace, for grace or forbearance. We can choose to engage. We must always clothe ourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. In 1 Peter uh, chapter uh, 3, verse 15 and 16, we read, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, the scripture says, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So every follower of Christ, Bill, every leader, every person for that matter, should determine in advance what hills to die on, what hills to bleed on, and and what hills not to climb at all. Mm. Doing so provides a framework of knowing when to engage regardless of the circumstances, when to engage in consideration of the circumstances, and when to withhold engagement in spite of the circumstances. We can't... Go ahead. No, Greg, I just have to say right off the bat, you are asking and raising such important questions. So I just want to thank you as we get uh, going uh, that you are just really prompting us to be um, uh, examining our hearts and and praying for discernment because these are these are really important. And I appreciate uh, your thoughts so far. So I'm just I'm just saying uh, I like what I'm hearing so far. Well, you know, I'm thinking, Bill, that just because we have the time on our hands right now, we're starting to think about these kind of deeper things, and we need to be making some decisions about what we're going to do do coming out of this situation. We cannot go to battle on every issue that comes our way. We can die on every we can't die on every hill. We can't bleed on every hill or we'll figuratively die, cease to have any impact prematurely. Frankly, there are many hills we shouldn't be climbing at all. Mm-hmm. There's someone else's hill to die on or someone else's hill to bleed on. Well, first of all, to determine what hills to die on, what hills to bleed on, and what hills we shouldn't be climbing at all, we need godly wisdom. James 1.5 tells us that if anyone lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But only if we ask. Let's consider what hills to die on, what hills to bleed on, and what hills shouldn't be climbed at all. Well, first of all, what are the hills we should be dying on? As I mentioned earlier, you can't die on every hill. Dying may not require your life, but it may require something just as permanent or painful. Choosing to die on a hill may mean that you're willing to embrace the consequences of engaging, even if it means you'll lose the goodwill of others, you'll marginalize your advancement prospects, or even lose your position, ranking, or job. The hill I choose to die on may not require my life, but it may require sacrificing popularity or acclaim or prestige or acceptance or affirmation. It may require that I set aside my dreams and aspirations for a higher reason. It may also mean that I may be marginalized or even ostracized. So what hills are worth dying on? First, they should be few in number. 
Second, they should ensure a laws, divine and secular, will not be violated. Third, they should honor our faith. Fourth, they should uphold our central beliefs and values. In other words, the matter is too important to ignore because it would mean that your character or faith is compromised. And finally, they should not uh, protect, or they should protect the defenseless, the unloved, and the marginalized. Now, these hills are not always a matter of public engagement. They may be a private or personal commitment, such as a commitment to live out certain beliefs and values, having decided which ones are non-negotiable. They may include putting the welfare and well-being of our family as our highest priority, and that will never compromise this commitment for any reason. They may include a commitment to submit to some cause, people, group, or belief system that uh, will stand in authority over our lives and forming and conditioning what we do. They will be the non-negotiables of our lives, something we will never sacrifice on the altar of expediency or political correctness. So if you think about it, you should be able to pretty quickly come up with those few uh, that you would be willing to die for. Is that fair? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and that you're, you're unwilling to compromise, that you're not going to give any ground on. So the questions we need to ask ourselves in this case are, what hills are you prepared to die on? Uh, what our, are the non-negotiables yeah, Greg, of your give life? our listeners an example of a hill you're just going to die on. Well, for my own case, I've selected four, uh, and only four. They're the, the ones I've decided to die on. The first one is my faith, the gospel and its obligations. You know, according to Titus 2, 11 through 14, that I'm going to um, not be living in the world. As, I'll be a part of the world, but I'm going to give up uh, worldliness live upright and controlled lives under under God. So my faith, that's something I won't compromise. A a second one might be my family, responsibility for their well-being. I'm going to do everything I can to protect them, to provide a safe and secure place for them. It says in 1 Timothy 5.8 that if we don't do that, then we're worse than an infidel. Another, the third one for me, the hill to die on, is my focus, my life purpose. I've got to be living in accordance with the trajectory God set for me in terms of my wiring, my, you know, in accordance with, with my personal beliefs, my values, you know, the hills I'll die on. And the last one for me, the fourth one is my fidelity, the Bible and its authority. I'm not going to compromise on that either. So those are, those are the four hills that I'm prepared to die on. That's a fantastic list. And did, did that list come to you like in two minutes? Uh, no, no, this is something I've been thinking about for a while. Okay. You know, when I started off making this list, Bill, I probably had 10 to 15 things, and I said, you know what? I'm going to die prematurely here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I've got to reduce this list to the irreducible minimums, and that's what I came up with. Okay, I love this, Greg. So we're talking about with Dr. Greg Borgon hills to die on, hills to bleed on, and hills not to climb. And she's done a fantastic job of talking about hills to die on. We're going to take a little break. When we come back, we're going to pick up right where we left off uh, on hills to bleed on with Dr. Greg Greg Borgon. You can head over to his website, heartofawarrior.org, heartofawarrior.org. We'll be right back.
All right, welcome back to the show. Dr. Greg Borgon is my guest, and we're talking about hills to die on, hills to bleed on, and hills not to climb. And unsolicited, uh, Greg, a listener uh, <laughs> named Emily said, for me, faith, family, pro-life values. What a great list. Yeah, that's great. That's a great list. I'm glad that she's able to identify those clearly. Yeah, and because this is a great exercise for people, if you are coming up in your mind with what your list is, uh, the hills that you're going to die on, uh, send them to me. I'd love to see what they are. 877-933-2484. 877-93-FAITH. Let's talk about hills to bleed on, Greg. Yeah. You can't bleed on every hill. If you bleed on too many hills, you'll die prematurely. So maybe we should talk about what bleeding on a hill means. Well, uh, I've known people who make an issue of every issue. It isn't long be- before what they say is automatically discounted, regardless of its importance. If if you make an issue of every issue, no one will take seriously any issue. You have made an issue. Good point. In Ecclesiastes 8.6, we read, For there is a proper time and procedure for every matter, though a man's misery weighs heavily upon him. Hills to bleed on is a metaphor for issues and concerns for which we're willing to take a stand given certain circumstances. They're situational in nature and change in terms of how, why, and when we will respond. Environmental factors condition whether we choose to say something or do something. Given the alignment and significance of contributing factors, we we may choose to engage given the right situation, but not willing to die for that issue. These issues are selected based on their importance, their possible effect and or effect on the outcome, or most importantly, the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes God calls us to make a stand and other times to remain silent. One day you may choose to engage the issue, while at other times you may choose not to engage. This doesn't mean that you're hypocritical or a weather vane moving in the direction of a prevailing sentiment or political correctness. It simply means that you've measured the circumstance or event and have chosen that this is not a hill to bleed on. At other times, however, the circumstance or event may be a hill to bleed on. That is, to risk your reputation, to negatively impact your relationships, or to lose respect or esteem, which could be the product of your engagement. In any case, choosing a hill to bleed on requires wisdom and the leading and conviction of the Holy Spirit. Hills to bleed on are not a matter of personal choice or feeling of obligation. Hills to bleed on are stimulated and instigated by the Lord. They're uh, energized by divine compulsion, and they're really engaged because you're led to do so by the Lord. So the questions we need to ask ourselves with regard to the hills we'll bleed on are, what hills will you consider bleeding on if the circumstances warrant? What hills is God's spirit prompting you to climb? What issue demands your involvement in the moment? So that's mm-hmm. what we're talking about, Bill, with regard to hills to bleed on. They're not our hills. They're God's hills. Okay. Uh, Greg, do you have a, a illustration of what a hill to bleed on might look like or an issue that, that maybe you bled on yourself? Well, uh, you know, one of the issues is abortion, it's something that I'm absolutely opposed to, to taking the life of, of an innocent one. But when you're in a mixed group, and um, especially with unfamiliar um, surroundings, you may not choose to engage because it's going to cause more harm than good because you'll be vilified or it'll be somehow leveraged to say something negative. 
Um, and so in that particular case, even though you feel strongly about it, or I felt strongly about it, I choose not to engage. And other times, I'm compelled by the Spirit to engage regardless of the cost mm-hmm. uh, on that same issue. Uh, when I feel that there's going to be a dialogue or that I'm going to be listened to, right. um, as well as me listening to somebody else's point of view. And in that particular case, it may be a sign or a leading of the Spirit for me to really engage this issue. Does that make sense, Bill? It does make sense, yeah. Yep. All right, let's move on to hills not to climb at all. All right. There are many hills we're not called to climb. They may be important, but they're not urgent. I would suggest that there are far more hills not to climb than you may know. Hmm. This does not mean that the matter before you is not important or worth consideration. It simply means that you're not the one called to address it. The issue or concern is someone else's hill to die on or someone else's hill to bleed on. The intrinsic worth of the issue may be significant, but you're not the one to deal with it. You may hold certain convictions about it. You may disagree or agree with it. You may have something to contribute regarding it, but have decided it's a hill you won't climb. Reasons for this conclusion may be decisions you made regarding the hills to die on or the hills to bleed on beforehand. This is not one of them. Or the criteria for engagement, which uh, you've decided beforehand is not met. Or engagement in this situation will do more damage than constructive help. If a situation arises where you're trying to decide what to do, here's the following criteria that I would consider with regard to hills to die on or hills to bleed on or hills not to climb at all. First question I would ask myself, Bill, is is it a hill I've already decided to die on? If it is, you're to make a stand, mm-hmm. regardless of the cost. Secondly, is it a hill I'm prepared or led, more importantly, to bleed on? That's where you have to be sensitive to the movement of the Spirit in your life, the prompting of God. And it may call you to do so, even though your emotions well up, as the scripture says, even though anxiety weighs heavily on your soul, you may not. Uh, be led to go ahead and engage it at that particular point in time. Number three, is it a hill someone else should die on or bleed on? Is it, you you know, is it your own personal hobby horse? You might want to disregard that already. Mm -hmm. Or if it is somebody else's uh, hill to die on or bleed on, why are you doing it? Um, So number four, is it a hill I've already decided not to climb? You know, when we sit down and we put together a ledger of the things I can influence and the things I can't influence, that it may be concerned about, that may be good criteria to decide what hills not to climb. And number five, is it really majoring in minors? Are we making a large issue out of a small concern or a small concern out of a large issues? So the questions we would ask ourselves in this case about hills to um, that we shouldn't be climbing at all, what hills are you not called to climb at all? That's the first question you have to answer. What hills Are others urging you to climb, but you know you shouldn't. A lot of people will come to us and and urge us to do something because they feel strongly about it, but God may not be calling you to do that. Somebody else's crisis is not your emergency. Um, But the other question you should probably ask yourself, what hills do not meet the criteria of the hill to die on or bleed on? So each man or woman must decide for themselves what hills they'll die on, what hills they'll bleed on, and what hills aren't. Uh, not to be climbed at all. Of course, uh, in the the course of your life, that will change. And as I've already shared with you, I shared with you the hills I'm prepared to die on under uh, any circumstance. But the others, the hills to bleed on, are going to be situational. 
or circumstantial. And I can decide ahead of time what hills I'm not even going to climb. So the hills we will bleed on will be hills God calls me to bleed on. My hills will be different than your hills, Bill. The hills I will bleed on will be his hills and not my hills. That's one of the problems I had in the past was, was making them my hills instead of God's hills. Um, the hills not worth climbing is everything else. I've learned over time, and I'm in my 70s now, that I was dying on too many hills. The hills I was bleeding on were my hills and not his hills. And the hills I uh, was not to climb at all were far more than I originally thought. So for the listeners, I would just simply ask you these three simple questions. What hills will you die on? What hills will you bleed on? What hills should you not climb at all? Hopefully, mm. Bill, that's helped to our listeners to kind of think through in this time of being apart from everybody and everything and um, sheltering in place. And these are some things that need to be thought through. And now God's given you the time to do that in the midst of this terrible crisis, this pandemic we're experiencing. Mm-hmm. Greg, you know, a verse that popped into my head was Proverbs 25, verse 11, that says, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. And when you talk about discernment, you know, what hills are you willing to bleed on? I sometimes think that God will give you the courage, strength, and discernment to speak up when it's appropriate, when you're going to be listened to, when you're not going to, um, you know, turn more people off than attract. Yeah, I mean, when you tune your heart to the heart of God, you're going to hear his voice distinctly, as we've talked about in previous shows, Bill, that God speaks most profoundly in a still, small voice. And the reason he does is because it forces us to lean forward to hear it. Yeah. And so if, if we're not taking that time in the midst of the emotions of the moment, we're not going to be able to make the right decision about whether or not we should engage or we shouldn't engage. Yeah. And of course, it's difficult, uh, Greg, whether it's our personal uh, a strong opinion or is it God's calling on our life when we're, exactly. you know, so that's where it gets a little uh, where you need God, you need the Holy Spirit to help you understand that. Yeah. You know, if, if your listeners, I, I don't know if this is okay, Bill, but if your listeners want to explore this a little bit further or even contact me directly about this, these issues, I'd be glad to talk to them about it. They can reach me at greg at heartofawarrior.org. Greg with one uh, G at heartofawarrior.org. And I'd be glad to, to um, talk to them about it. That is the generous nature of you. <laughs> Greg, that's uh, one of the things I just like about you. You're a complete uh, open book, and you just say, come, I will help you. And I think that's a beautiful thing. Greg at heartofawarrior.org is where Greg can be reached personally if you want to uh, uh, ask him a question. Greg, thanks for doing the show. Look forward to seeing you in person one of these days real soon. <laughs> I hope it's in Ireland, Bill. That'd be nice. <laughs> That'd be nice. <laughs> All right. right. Have a great uh, afternoon. Blessings. All right. Thanks, Bill. Yep. Dr. Greg Borgon has been my guest. His website is heartofawarrior.org. Gave us lots of good things to think about. We'll take a little break. We'll be coming back. Pastor Brent Kuhlman will be joining me, and we're going to be talking about the joy and delight of the uh, Resurrection Day. Be right back. Faith Radio.
Welcome back to the show. As promised, we're going to keep the tank getting filled this hour. Big thanks to Dr. Greg Borgon. And now Pastor Brent Kuhlman is my guest. He is the uh, uh, senior pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in uh, uh, Murdoch, Nebraska. And he's been uh, just a regular guest that brings the great wisdom to the show. Brent, welcome back. Hi, Bill. Peace be with you. Happy Easter. Peace be with you. You know what? And we're not tired of hearing about the Resurrection Day and the delight that's in all of our hearts about what happened when Jesus rose from the dead. Indeed. Absolutely. Yeah, and I would love to hear what your message was on Sunday. Well, I preached a fact. I love it. And it's from Matthew 28. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And I say fact for a reason, because uh, as I told my congregation on Sunday, you know, I don't watch certain television shows during Holy Week and Easter or television networks or programs because um, they'll, port- they'll portray the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ as mythical. Hmm. And uh, they'll say that, oh, these poor early Christians, you know, they, they sure wish that Jesus would have risen from the dead, although they, they know he didn't, but uh, they wish he did, and that, that helps them cope with their problems in life. So it was like wish fulfillment, if you will. But the fact of the matter is this, is that the evangelists and the Apostle Paul and all the writers of the Scripture, they proclaim Christ's resurrection as fact. And one of the reasons why I say it's fact, there are two. Number one, Jesus over and over again in his ministry, promised that he would suffer, die, and rise again, and he actually did it, which then proves who he is and who he claimed to be. He actually is the Son of God. I mean, that makes, that makes a huge difference. In fact, it is the difference. And then secondly, there were eyewitnesses that actually saw him. And, you know, I preached, I think, my goodness, I think I preached 10 times on Sunday because we'd, we'd offer 30-minute uh, services for 10 people. <laughs> and uh, All spaced out? Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. All spaced out. Yeah. So tell the authorities they were all spaced out, social distances, you know, all that stuff. <laughs> but I, I, told, I told my people, I said, you know, um, when you go to court, if you've ever been to court, the judge and the jury want to hear eyewitness testimony. They don't, they don't admit hearsay. And then I, I offhandedly, jokingly said, you know, there's only one place that I know of in the world that will allow hearsay to be evidence to try and prosecute people, and that's Washington, D.C., but I said not, not anywhere else. <laughs> um, the, the, the judge and the jury, they want to hear eyewitnesses, and, and that's, what, that's what makes the case. And that's what Paul does, for example, but I'll get to him in a second. Okay. In Matthew 28, the text from which I preached, you know, the angel comes down from heaven, uh, rolls away the, the stone, sits on it, and of course you'd think he'd be the star of the show because his appearance is like lightning and his clothing is white as snow. And these, these hardcore Roman soldiers, they fall down as dead men. So you'd think the angel, he's the star of the show, but it's not. He's just there, as all angels are, to preach a sermon. And he preaches the sermon to the women that, you know, I, you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. I'm here to tell you, ladies, he's not here. And he's risen. And as I indicated prior in my remarks, the angel says, just as he said. <laughs> so, you know, you're uh-huh. always, the angel always takes us back to what the Lord said. Right. Okay. And then uh, he says, the angel says, now why don't you come over here, ladies? Do you see where the corpse was? Wow. It's not here, is it? And so they see, they see that the, it, the corpse isn't there. And then, of course, they run from the tomb because the angel says, now you go tell my brothers. They're the disciples. I'll meet, he'll meet you in Galilee. And as they sprint from the tomb, based upon Matthew 28, guess what? The resurrected Jesus, the crucified and resurrected Jesus, he meets them and says, greetings. They fall down at his feet and they worship him. They were eyewitnesses. That's my point. And remember the women, they actually witnessed his burial. 
with Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. The women were there. So they saw the dead body buried, and now, in Matthew's account, you have these women who actually see the resurrected Jesus. And then, continuing with this theme about fact, you know, I preach the fact that the resurrection is a fact because they're eyewitnesses. You know, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he goes through the whole list of names of people who had seen the resurrected Jesus. And just for the sake of uh, the continuing this discussion here, Bill, in Luke's Gospel, you have the Emmaus disciples, remember? Mm-hmm. And just so that the, they don't think he's a ghost, he actually eats with them. Remember that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and in John's Gospel, you have uh, Jesus the night Easter evening. You know, the disciples are in the room. They've got the doors locked for fear of the Jews. You know, they crucified Jesus. What are they going to do with us? Mm-hmm. And then, lo and behold, Jesus doesn't even knock, because I think if he would have knocked, Peter would have said, who is it? (laughs) And if Jesus Jesus would have said, it's the Lord, Peter probably would have said, lock the doors tighter. (laughs) But uh, he doesn't even knock. He goes in, and they see him with their eyes. And, of course, there was one guy who was absent. His name was Thomas. And so a week later, they're in the upper room again, and Jesus shows himself to Thomas. And the unbeliever, Thomas, by the way, the Greek isn't doubt. The Greek is, Thomas literally says, I don't believe. And when Jesus says, you know, he says, stop disbelieving and believe. Point being, getting back to the topic, is Thomas, the unbeliever, is a believer when he finally says, my Lord and my God, he actually saw Jesus with his eyes. Remember, Peter says with regard to the transfiguration, but it would apply to all the other events recorded in Scripture, that they're not, they're not following cleverly invented myths, but we saw with our eyes the majesty of his glory. And so all, I preach the fact of the resurrection, yeah. and this has tremendous meaning for us today and for the rest of our lives and into eternity. Oh, amen. And in all fairness to Thomas, I mean, he was just trying to settle down the hysterical group because he was not <laughs> present there. And then he w- was more convinced than ever, I believe. I don't have to put my hands in the, in the nail holes or in the side. I believe, I believe. I mean, he was anything but a doubter. Yeah, he said, I, don't, I won't believe it, and I don't believe it until. Right. Yeah. You know, an, an interesting side note, Bill, on the Thomas story. Yeah. Remember, this is, this is after, you know, the week before when Jesus appears— and he forgives these sinners. Remember, these people had sinned against Jesus. And he comes in the upper room and he forgives them. Peace be with you. That's Beautiful. forgiveness. Oh my. That's, that's an absolution. And so he forgives them. And then he says in John 20, he, he says, As the Father has sent me, so now I send you. And he breathed on them and he said, Receive the Holy Spirit. And then, interestingly, just as he'd forgiven them, now he gives them the task to go out and forgive. He says, if you forgive anyone their sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, the point I'm trying to make here with Thomas is, if there was anybody who was the prime candidate for the latter, namely not to be forgiven, it would be Thomas. Instead, Jesus goes to him to win him. See, this is like Matthew 18 in John's Gospel. Jesus goes to this Thomas, this guy who says, I won't believe and he goes and wins him, and he does, when Thomas says, my Lord and my God. That's a side note, by the way. Mm-hmm. That's lots of fun. Yeah. So, uh, Brent, how many times did the disciples hear, uh, on the third day, on the third day, on the third day, I will rise again, and yet everyone on the third day didn't stop and wonder, hmm, I wonder if he's risen. Yeah. Did they yeah, connect those dots, or was that hidden from him? Was that hidden from them? 
Well, see, this is the thing with all of us. We all are like the apostles and the disciples, aren't we? We hear the Word of God, and we say our amen, and then when the event or whenever it happens, it's like, oh, and we react differently. And that's exactly why the angels are, are sent to preach at the resurrection. And as I've indicated here in Matthew's account, the angel reminds the women he, he said he would do it. And so you have to trust his word. And this gets back to the Thomas account in John's gospel. Blessed are those who believe and have not seen. Mm-hmm. And that's why faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So this is why preaching is so important and preaching the resurrection in particular. Because we have to preach this fact, because if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then Paul says, your faith is futile, it's a waste, and you're still in your sins. Now, the opposite, of course, is that Jesus did rise from the dead, which means, one of the many things it means is this, is that we are, we are forgiven. We are forgiven. That is to say, with the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father essentially says, what you did, my son, on Good Friday, is good. I count it as good. You paid for the sin of the world by shedding your divine blood and offering your body on the Christ to atone for the sin of the world. It's good. That's why Paul says the opposite in First Corinthians. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, then you're still in your sins. Mm. That's how important Easter is. Mm-hmm. And notice, just, a, just by way of side note here, check it out, folks. In your Bibles, read the the resurrection accounts. So after Jesus is raised, read Matthew's gospel, read Mark's, read Luke's, and read John's. And notice that the resurrected Jesus in each gospel gives the church a task. And it essentially is doing what? It's making sure that the benefits of his Good Friday dying, namely forgiveness of sins, is communicated, preached, and given and bestowed to people. So John 20, which I just quoted earlier, Luke 24, make sure you preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Mark 16, preach the gospel to the entire world. Matthew 28, you make disciples by giving people my divine name and baptism and then teaching them, etc. Isn't that interesting how this works? Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah, it's great. Um, And Brent, in your persuasive pastoral way, talk about how significant that event is. And Paul talked about that in Corinthians, about how Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day. That is, in essence, the gospel on which you uh, put your faith and your trust and your allegiance into and cling to. That is how you believe. Yes. I'm, I'm glad you raised that. This is the essence of the Scriptures. You'll notice in 1 Corinthians 15, which you just quoted, it's interesting that Paul doesn't give a, an exact chapter and verse from a specific uh, prophet like Isaiah or Jeremiah, but he says that Christ died, was buried, and rose each time according to the Scriptures, scriptures. which means the entire Old Testament, which is to say that these events, death, burial, resurrection, is the essence of the scripture and the scriptures. And in, when Paul wrote that, of course, that would have been the Old Testament. Because mm-hmm. Paul, wrote, Paul wrote his first letter to, to the Corinthians, I would contend, before the evangelists ever wrote their Gospels. I think this is the, one of the earliest uh, documents we have in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's important, because that teaches us that the, the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus is central for our salvation. In fact, not just central, it is our salvation. That is the Gospel. 
And that's why when you read the book of Acts, like in Acts 10, for example, they preach the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was died, but he rose from the dead, just like he said. And he is the Savior. And by the way, in connection with that, folks, check this out. When you read Acts and when you read the New Testament, there is a psalm that is quoted more than any other psalm in the New Testament. Do you know what that is, Bill? Um, Psalm 110. Okay. Where Christ, that is the New Testament, and Jesus himself applies that psalm to him, the resurrected Jesus. Hmm. Check that out sometime, folks. It's, it's I want to check it out right. Work. I want to check it out right now. But I'm in the <laughs> middle of a live radio show, so that's not going to work. So here's what I'm going to do, Brent. I'm going to put you on hold, and we're going to go to break. And I'm going to Psalm 110. So Pastor Brent Kuhlman is my guest. We'll take a short break and be right back. show. Pastor Brent Coleman is my guest, pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Murdoch, Nebraska. We're chatting about his Resurrection Day sermon and message, and I'm loving this. You say, by faith in Jesus, you stand before God pure and without sin, crucified and risen with him. What a powerful reminder that is, Brent. Yeah, it's what the scriptures teach categorically. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that when Christ died, all died. And then uh, Scripture also says, like in Romans 6, that we were buried with him through baptism into death. And we also are taught that Christ is the first fruits of them that sleep. Um, point being, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ means that his victory over death and the grave is our victory over death and the grave. Or let's put it another way. Uh, let's push it even further. When Christ rose, we rose, because what he did counts for us who believe in him. When Christ ascended into heaven, we ascended together with him, because uh, what he did counts for us. That's why Paul says in his letters, uh, for example, I'm doing this off, off the top of my, my head, but I think in Ephesians, he says, you are seated with Christ. You see, you sit with him. It's Ephesians 2, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we, and Paul says in Colossians that our lives are hidden with Christ and, and uh, think about the things in heaven, because that's where you are. That's where your, your reality is. You're in Christ. Christ is in you. Point being, just to sum this up, that when Christ died, he did it for you, and it counts for you. When he rose, he did it for you, and it counts for you. I make this distinction all the time when I preach and teach, and it's this, and I hope this is edifying for people. It's one thing for Jesus to die, and that's a historical fact. And it's one thing for Jesus to rise from the dead, and that's a historical fact. But the big difference is this, is that he died and rose for you Mm. and for your salvation. You see, you get the gospel full-blown gospel when you preach these facts and you say, he did it for you. Let me give you an example of how this works in the scripture. Like in Acts chapter 2, uh, you remember Peter, when he cuts the people to the heart and asks, what should we do? And he says, you know, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he says, this promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off. Notice the for you talk. I'll say more about that in a minute. Uh, Another example would be the accounts of the Lord's Supper in the New Testament. Um, Just check that out in Matthew 26 and the parallels, where Jesus will say, this is for you. 
or he takes the bread and he gives it to them, or he takes the cup of wine and he gives it to them. Point being for you talk is always gift talk. So the death and resurrection of Jesus is for you. See, that, that's, that's biblical gospel preaching. Hmm. And I want to emphasize this if I may, Bill. It's, you can recite all the facts you want, but that's not preaching the gospel yet. You have to say that it's for you. Let me illustrate. Let's pretend that you're a high school student and you're, you're on the debate team, and you go to the, to the debate, and you get up at the podium and you say, now, I have five minutes in which to speak. I can't call my opponent by names, and here's my topic. Have you debated? No, you haven't. Similarly, when a pastor gets in the pulpit and says, now, you're, just, you're justified by faith. Is that true? Yes. But like the debater, you're reciting the, the, the rules. And in that sense, you have to say more than you're justified by faith. You have to say that Jesus died for you, you see. That's the gospel. Mm. I hope this is helpful for people. Oh, it's helpful for me. So that's, that's a good place to start. Um, and Brent, I think we should serve up uh, Galatians 2.20 in this conversation as well. Yeah. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The right. life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And that, that is exactly the point I was trying to make in my sermon, that you've, you've been crucified and you've been risen with Christ. You've died with Christ, you've been raised with Christ. Mm-hmm. So, and part of this being raised with Christ before the last day and before the resurrection of the body, in, the, in between times, now is the life by faith, in, as you quoted there in Galatians 2, and then secondly, our Lord's good use of us, his faithers, his trusters, to take care of people in, in sacrificial service of love to people. Mm-hmm. Brent, if you would... And that's the power of the resurrection, by the way. Yeah. If you would, address how emotions play into this, because right now, in the middle of all the craziness in the world and the uncertainty, and I, I know this from speaking to listeners, that there are emotions that come into their uh, mind that go, but I don't feel like I belong to the Lord. I don't know if I, if he truly does love me. And I always try to stress that he does completely. (laughs) Well, you preach the external promise of the gospel and you tell people to trust that whether they feel it or not. Mm -hmm. You just give people a bigger dose of Jesus. That's how I like to say it. I love that. So you don't feel it. Well, let me tell you the promise again. (laughs) Right. Now think about, think about this in John 11. How do you think Mary and Martha felt? Now, I think they were quite angry when they put out the 911 pastoral emergency call, and Jesus purposely stayed away. And so Lazarus is dead and buried for four days, and then he finally shows up. I think think the emotion is quite angry and frustrated, but yet he gives them a promise. Do you believe this, he says to Martha? I am the resurrection of life. Do you believe this? Okay. And I think that's what we have to do with people. Yes, I know you don't feel like it. But you must trust the Word of God more than your emotions. Because here's the point, Bill. God's Word is certain and sure. Our emotions aren't. Mm. Amen. I love that. And I'm, now, I'm, oh, will there be emotions? Yes. And there, there can be great joy coming from the promise of the Lord. And when that happens, it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. When I go back to the beginning of what you were talking about when the, when the angel appears and preaches to the women, first of all, I can imagine the, the angel that got picked to do that, how exciting that would be, right? Yeah. I mean, you're, a, I don't know if you're God's pet angel or what, but that's a pretty, <laughs> pretty cool job to be able to get to do that. 
And then I, I love the tradition uh, of in those times, because meals would last for a long, long time, and then if you got up to go to the bathroom, you would um, fold your napkin uh, in a nice way and put it to the side of your plate, which would let the server know you're coming back. Um, and if you were done with the meal and not coming back, you'd take your napkin and just sort of dump it in the middle of your plate. But when they look at the burial cloths, there were the burial cloths clumped on the, on the place where he laid, but the one that was wrapped around his head was folded neatly and put off to the side. Right. And I always, <laughs> I always tell people this, is that, you know, when you were a kid and you were growing up and you'd, uh, you'd get dressed, you'd just throw your clothes on the floor, you know. But Jesus, when he is raised from the dead, he folds them up nicely and puts them in place. <laughs> and, <laughs> but the, these little details are important because they actually prove that Jesus did rise from the dead. Because if, if the contention is true that it was a grave robbery, then the headpiece wouldn't have been folded nicely right? and put in its place. In fact, it says just the opposite, that he really did rise from the dead, and he folded his clothes and left. That's really, you know, I've never connected those dots, you know, because they did, they did try to say grave robbery and everything else. And right. it's like, why was there some order then in the tomb? Yeah, it's because he rose and he folded his clothes. <laughs> <laughs> He, he, let's let's have fun with this. We can speculate. We'll have to ask Mary when we get to heaven, but I'll bet you taught your son to fold his clothes when he got up in the morning or when he went to bed. And so he does it even after he rises from the dead. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's just wonderful. I love that. So as we think of the resurrected Jesus and then appearing to over 500 people and eating with, laughing, being together, uh, it must have been uh, just so overwhelming to the apostles to be in his presence again. I uh, can only imagine the emotion going from uh, Jesus is being crucified and dead to he's back. Right, and Matthew 28 speaks of these emotions. The women, they depart quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. And in Mark's account, again, it's great fear. And it's interesting in Mark's gospel, just check this out, in Mark's gospel all the way through, when Jesus does miracles or says certain things, the emotions. And, and a lot of it is the astonishment, amazement, or fear. Why is that? Because Jesus says things and does things that no one else could do. Only one being in the universe could say, could talk like this and do these things, and that is God. And so with the resurrection, the emotion, can you imagine this? He is who he says he is. You know, we, we believed it before he died, but now, oh my, it, it's absolutely true. And so uh, this is just marvelous. Mm -hmm. uh, and all the promises of the Old Testament come, uh, come into fulfillment here, that the promises of salvation are just flipping through their heads, no doubt, and their minds and their hearts, that the, the scriptures are now fulfilled. This is the biggest event in the history of the world. And, and it, it's just incredible. You know, there are times I started, uh, I started to weep a little bit on Sunday when I preached one of my sermons because the resurrection just hit me like a ton of bricks, yeah. that, that he actually did this for me, yeah. and that he cut a path for me as the first fruits of them that sleep, that I too will be raised from the dead and forever. Yeah, this line from your uh, message, I just love. You say, I'm here to tell you that the Lord Jesus carried all your sin in his crucified body on the cross. I'm here to tell you that raised bodily from death and the grave, Jesus leaves all your sin buried in the black hole of his tomb. That's a great, right. I think that's we, a great image. I think we short shrift the burial. Yeah. 
notice that Scripture, this is very important. All four of the evangelists record the burial of Jesus. That means it's really important. You know, for example, the parable of the sower, I think, is in uh, three or four of the uh, evangelists. Mm -hmm. That means it's important. So the burial is very important. And why is the burial? And Paul quotes it, as we mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, Peter preaches it in Acts. Why is this important? Well, I just said it, that he takes your sin and he buries it forever. Yeah. It's buried. Yeah. Brent, this is just the exact Bible study I hoped we would have. <laughs> I'm glad. Thank you so much for coming on and doing the show. I'll send my listeners over to your uh, your blog, Brent Kuhlman, K-U-H-L-M-A-N dot WordPress dot com. Brent Kuhlman dot WordPress dot com. Brent, thanks for doing the show. Look forward to our next time we chat. Thank you. Happy Easter. God Happy peace. Easter again. Yeah. That wraps up our show for the day. Thank you so much for spending time with me. I love this time together, and I'm already looking forward to our time tomorrow. That's, you know, what I'm already excited about. I hope you have a good night, everyone. When you lay that head on the pillow, know that God is working out his great plan in your life. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.